If you've been around MVC for any length of time, you know we have a high view of Scripture, which, which, what does that mean? High view of Scripture means that we believe it's the Word of God, that it has a purpose, that it has a purpose for our lives, and that we can learn from it on how to be better Christians, and we can learn who God is from His Word, and so we teach it, and we preach it, and we study it, and we believe it, Right? And I mean that legitimately, not just in words. Every church will say what I just said, but some of them don't practice it. We also have a high view of expository preaching. Expository preaching simply means that the preacher takes the time to discover the author's original intent to the original audience at that time the text was written. Then after looking at the meaning, the original meaning, we determine how we can apply that in our current context. We, we need to find out the true meaning of what the Bible teaches and learn how to respond to it today. So you'll hear cliche phrases like, I don't care what the text means to you, just tell me what the text means, right? Things like that. And, and so if you ever hear me say that, don't take it personally. You're not the first person I've said that to, right? Now, most expositional preaching happens by working through books of the Bible. We've been going through Genesis. And, and, but I want to clear up a misunderstanding about expository preaching. Expository preaching doesn't demand that every sermon is a verse-by-verse preaching through the text from chapter 1 to the end of the book, whatever you're doing. You can do topical exposition as long as what you're teaching is coming from the text. And this different in this sense. I, I had a professor in, in seminary tell me, he said, there's a difference between a biblical sermon and a textual sermon. And I was like, what? That makes no sense. He said, oh, a biblical sermon is everything the guy said came from the Bible. It just didn't come from that text. And so in expository preaching, you want to preach the text. That, that's, that's what you do. So, and I, and I will say this, it's useful. Preaching through books of the Bible is useful because you, you, you're able to work through books to see the account, you see the progression, the development of the, of, the, of the stories, you work through those books, it allows the hearer to understand the bigger picture of not just that book, but the Bible. But one of the other things it does is it forces you to deal with the text, you don't get to skip sections. And I only say that because if I could, I'd skip Genesis 34. <laughs> it's a tough story. It's a brutal story of a passive Jacob and what happens to his kids. It's a passage that never mentions God. And I trust the word of God enough to know that God placed this in this text, in this book, at this point, in this story of Jacob for a reason. And it's important to know things about this text, what we can learn from it. But God's not found anywhere in chapter 34. Which is probably likely intended to convey to the reader what happens to mankind without God. As we head into this passage, I want to make sure we get this right. I want to make sure that we understand why this story is here, why it's placed in this place at this time in the Genesis narrative. And if you've got a Bible that has chapter titles, your Bible probably titles this, The Defilement of Dinah. Does it? 
That happens in this text, but that's not the main point of this text. What happens to Dine as a catalyst for the rest of this passage, I agree with, with writer Alan Ross, who said the chapter should be titled The Defilement by the Pagans or Defiled by the World. Because our text begins by setting a stage for a recurring theme that's woven throughout the book of Genesis, and it's this. The people of God live in the world, but they should not be of the world. And our story in Genesis 34 is a tale of what happens when those two things blend in a way they shouldn't blend. So let's begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamar, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and he lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. Now our text immediately sets the stage for this story. Dinah, who would have probably been at the most 15 years old, but probably in that 10 or 11 year old range here. At this time, Dinah says, the text says Dinah went out to see the women of the land. If you remember, if we've gone through Genesis, what Genesis has to say about when it mentions the Canaanite women, it is not kind to them. It is never a good thing when the text mentions these Canaanite women. It's mentioned in the Abraham narratives, the Isaac narratives, and here in the Jacob narrative. The Canaanite women were sexually promiscuous. They worshiped foreign gods. And if you remember Esau, this will probably trigger a memory for you. Esau married two of them, and apparently they were such a problem. In chapter 27, Rebekah said, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Now, I don't know what these women were doing, but Rebekah was upset about it. And it's the same word where it says the women of the land in, in chapter 27. Same, same words in verse 1 of chapter 34. Dinah went out to see the women of the land. Now Dinah, what, what this is saying is Dinah is being drawn to the influence of these ungodly women. Now, I want to be clear here. Verse 1 is in no way implying in any way, shape, or form that Dinah was to blame for what happened to her. That is not what they're trying to teach us here. But the question is being set up. I heard one writer frame it this way. How will God's people maintain their unique character and identity as they're surrounded by people who are not God's people? Can you feel, you feel that way sometimes? Will the influence of this world and its people be an obstacle too high to overcome? That's what's going on in 34. What happens when God's people go from being in the world to being of the world? That's still a question we face today. We aren't removed from this world. We're in the world, not of the world, but we're still in the world. We can't avoid it. We can't avoid cultural influence. We can't avoid the politics. We can't avoid what's happening around us by people who are not God's people. And we're not even supposed to remove ourselves, we're supposed to be salt and light. We're not supposed to hide away in communes and pretend nothing's happening. Oh, that's outside. Salt and light, but we still have to maintain integrity and identity as believers while we're living in the world. And how do we do that? 
We start with obedience. That's, that's, that's how. That's how, you, that's how you do it. You start with obedience. You see, Jacob was not where he was supposed to be. Jacob had vowed earlier to settle in Bethel. That's what he had told God. I'm going to Bethel. You remember Bethel? Bethel was the place where he first met God. But he didn't go to Bethel. Oh, he got close. He got close. He, he made it to Canaan. He's in the promised land. Technically, he's in. He's just not where he's supposed to be. You see what I'm saying here? Are you in the camp, just not where you're supposed to be? A Christian, but you find yourself out of the will of God, not where you're supposed to be? You become too close to the world? Now we're going to see what Jacob's decision to disobey God did to this family. It begins with the rape of his daughter, Dinah. Dinah's assaulted after going out to hang out with these Canaanite women. Verse 1 is not blaming Dinah for the assault. It's just stating a fact, all right, that if she had stayed home and not gone to hang around these pagan women, this would have not happened. But this is not on Dinah. The text is very forceful. It goes out of its way to make sure we understand what's happening here, that Dinah was a victim. All the blame falls on Shechem. Everything is out of order. It's such a strange text. If, if, if some of this in this first few verses stroke you as bizarre, it should. It's, everything's out of order. It's disordered. You can feel it in the way the text is written. Shechem saw her. He seized her. He lay with her. He humiliated her. And if that wasn't enough to add insult to injury, after he rapes her, he proclaims his love for her, decides to speak kindly to her, tells his dad, buy her for me so I can marry her. And we'll find out later, he didn't even let her leave. He kidnapped her. Dinah's humiliated. The family's humiliated. The name of God is humiliated. The word humiliated here in this text describes an affliction tied to a level of persecution. And what Shechem did to Dinah was gruesome and violent, and it was an abomination before God. And so Jacob responds, verse 5, Now Jacob heard that, had, that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for, no, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Hey, look, Jacob, my, my son loves your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give us your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. Verse 10, you shall dwell with us and in the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for a great, a bride price as a gift as you will, and I will give you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Now, one of the striking things about this passage is the three responses. There's, there's three responses from three different, three, three different groups of people. Jacob, the patriarch, the father, the dad, 
is utterly passive here. We're going to spend more time talking about Jacob in a few moments. But, but Hamor and Shechem act as if this isn't really a big deal. They don't even reference it. They're over here. Oh, no, he loves your daughter. There's no sense of remorse. There's no apology. There's not even an acknowledgement that there's anything wrong. And apparently the people of the tribe feel the same way. Hamor would be the leader of this tribe of people. His son Shechem wanted something, so he decided to take it. And as far as he's concerned, that's enough. I want it. It's mine. Now here's some money. Let's make it official. But the sons of Israel, Dinah's full brothers, Simeon and Levi, they were enraged and seemed surprised that their father was not more upset. Look at verse 7. The men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. Bruce Walkie said that Dinah is an obsession to Shechem in this text, a bargaining chip for Hamor, a source of outrage for her brothers, and just passive indifference for the father. The brothers were enraged. It, it uses the words an outrageous thing, which is a Hebrew term that, that talks about the most serious kind of sexual evil. It's profane. It's moral outrage. And they realized the magnitude of the crime. See, this was about Dinah, but it was about so much more than that. But because Shechem, what Shechem did to, to Dinah, according to verse 7, was an assault on Israel. It's a godless act that has polluted the family, and Israel could no way tolerate these blatant violations of God's moral law. They had a, a proper view of the significance of what happened in this moment. Naming Israel in verse 7 was a direct opposition to Jacob's response, or lack of response. This was a defilement of not only Dinah, but against Jacob and ultimately against the people of God. And their anger, their, their indignation was righteous. They should have been angry. They should have been outraged. But their response? The response was anything but righteous. Let's look in verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that will be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. And their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of the city saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us, to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock and their property and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they dwell with us. You see the greed happening here. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. And then on the third day, when they were sore, 
Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with a sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob, now these are the brothers now, they show up. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in their houses, they captured and plundered. Now notice the earliest text, Hamor is saying whatever he needs to say to get what he wants. To Jacob, he presents this kumbaya moment of, of togetherness. You know, we're, we're just going to all get along here. And then, and, uh, you know, let's make, but notice what he says. He's in verse nine, make marriages with us. Give us your daughters. Take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Which is literally the opposite of what God said Israel should do. God tells them, do not marry the people that are not God's people. Do not take daughters for your own. Do not dwell in their tents. Do not settle with them. Do not become like them. But Hamor, he's lying the whole time. We see this. He presents this to his people. He just wants their livestock and their servants and their wealth. He sees this as an opportunity to take what's theirs without war. And again, what's Jacob's response? It's nothing. You won't find Jacob respond. Jacob lets the sons take over these negotiations. Jacob, the patriarch, the one God put in charge, has relinquished his authority to these 20-year-old sons. This isn't just a father letting sons have some say. Jacob's gone completely passive. He's gone silent. Jacob was already, wasn't where he was supposed to be, which placed Dinah in a position she would not have been in if Jacob had done what he said he would do, what he vowed, and he'd gone to Bethel. And now we see the effects of Simeon, Simeon and Levi and how this single event changed the course of not just their lives, but all of their children's lives as well. These two young men are angry, and we can understand the anger. Their anger was righteous, righteous indignation. It was proper. The, they had a desire for justice, but their motivation wasn't just. Their motivation was vengeance. That's the kind of, and, but they wanted to defend their sister. And guys, that's the kind of brother you want to be to a sister. You want to defend your sister. But Simeon and Levi didn't carry out this deceptive murderous scheme without creating even more problems because here's what they did. They used the sign of the covenant as part of their deception. They brought God into their injustice by using circumcision as part of the plan. This was the holy sign of God instituted in Genesis 17 as part of the Abrahamic covenant. This shall be a sign for you and for your children after you. And entering into this relationship with God where God will be your God and we will be his people is what it says, this holy sign of circumcision. They take that and they turn it into a sign of destruction and deception. It would be no different then if I called all my enemies, I don't know who those are, but if I found, went out and tracked down all my enemies, 
And I brought them in here, and I sat them down, and I convinced them they needed to be baptized, and I bring all y'all in here, and we're going to celebrate baptism, and I preach a sermon on the glorious ordinance of baptism and how it represents dying to our old selves and being renewed in Christ as a new creation, and then I take them and drown them in the baptistry one by one. Simeon and Levi go in and murder all of these men who are part of this tribe. All of the men, because they're too sore to fight back, dozens of men. Then they get their brothers to help them plunder the city, and they take everything else back with them. All the women, all the children, all the, all the animals. They find Dinah, who's been abducted, and they take her home. And verse 27 lets us know that this, this plundering of the city was not just a, an attempt to get more stuff. It's actually part of the punishment that they were trying to merit out on these people. They saw this as justice... The reason, reason Simeon and Levi would have seen this as justice is because, according to the culture of that day, the men in that city should have held Shechem accountable for his actions. And they didn't. So they said, oh, this is, so that's how they justified it as justice. But it wasn't, it was vengeance. And I got to be honest with you. Here's some stuff I had run through my head. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confess some stuff. All right? I'm, not, I'm actually confessing sin, okay? When I first read this, I thought, man, that was really clever. And it, it, it is clever. But a part of me thought, good, those guys got what they deserved. They deserve punishment, but they did not deserve vengeance. Do you know why? Vengeance was not Simeon and Levi's to merit out. They deserved justice, but vengeance belongs to God, and God is a God of justice. And they didn't trust God to merit out justice. They took it in their own hands and created an abomination of the covenant. This vengeance that Simeon and Levi bring was a defining moment in their lives. From this moment forward, they became known as violent men, and they embraced it. Decades after this event, Jacob brings in all 12 of his sons to bless them before he dies. And this is what it said. This is Jacob's blessing of Simeon and Levi in Genesis 49. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their knives are vicious weapons. May I never enter their council. May I never join their assembly, for in their anger they kill men, and on a whim they hamstring oxen. So we're talking about just for the fun of it, just killing animals. Their anger is cursed, for it is strong, and their fury, for it is cruel. I will disperse them throughout Jacob and scatter them throughout Israel. And that's exactly what happened. Levi, we know it became the tribe of Levi. The, the priest came from the tribe of Levi. But the priest couldn't inherit land. And because of that, they became scattered. 
Simeon's descendants ended up being nomadic people who traveled around the region of Judah, around the brother Judah after they settled. And Jewish history believes that Dinah never married and lived in seclusion in Simeon's household because of the, the level of shame that came on her from this event. But in verse 30, finally, finally we get a response from Jacob. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink in the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our daughter, I'm sorry, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? I think I would have preferred if Jacob just never spoke. Verse 30, he didn't grieve for his daughter. He didn't grieve for the violent acts of his sons, acts that would change their lives forever. He didn't grieve for the assault on his family or the abomination done by using the sign of the covenant to carry out their deceit. He worried he might lose everything he worked for. Jacob's indifference is what starts all of this. His indifference to keep obedience to God and, and his vow to settle in Bethel. His indifference... As Dinah wandered about to look upon the pagan women of the city, Jacob's indifference as he hears about her humiliation, Jacob's indifference as, he, as the actions of his son rebound on his own life, and it reminds me of Adam in the garden. Once again in Genesis, we have a passive man in a position of authority, a man who shirks his responsibility by giving up that authority. He doesn't speak when words are needed. He steps aside when what is needed is stepping up. He doesn't speak the truth in love. He doesn't speak at all until it affects him directly. And rather than embracing God's role that, that he has placed on Jacob as head of this household, as, as the patriarch of, the, of Israel, and making these hard decisions that stand firm on God's law, he sits back and watches his family fall apart. And let's be honest, this is not the first time this has happened in the book of Genesis. So Jacob is left with a question to consider by his sons. Okay, Dad, what should we have done? Let them treat Dinah like a prostitute? And I know I sound hard on Jacob, but let's just be honest. He ran into an issue that we all run into as we live in the world. Trying to find a balance of being in the world, not of the world. Jacob had built relationships with Hamor and Shechem and these people. He was trading with them. He had a life going with them. He didn't want to give that up. And, and, and the reality is, in life, no one wants to be disliked. I know there's some people say that they don't care. That's just not true. I don't care if somebody doesn't like me. Well, I got a few people that don't like me, and I don't care, but I don't know them, and I don't ever see them. So what is that? You know? No one wants to be disliked, and the temptation to fit in 
especially in somewhere when you show up to work every day and you have to see these people every day. And yeah, you got some of them you don't like. I get it. But the temptation to fit in, it's incredible. And it's even greater pressure as the world gets further and further and further and further away from anything resembling Christian morality. And as now as the world becomes more vocal about what they think of Christians, I heard, I heard a pastor just a few weeks ago talking about this. I'm not going to go into depth of it, but he's, he basically said the world has taken the doctrine of total depravity and turned it against Christians by basically presenting a narrative that everything's Christians touch, they mess up. Everything Christians touch goes bad. You see that recently, you want to see the most recent example of it. When SCOTUS um, overturned Roe v. Wade in the Dobbs decision, so much of the narrative that popped up after about two days of the, after things start settling out, you know the words I started seeing pop up? Christian Taliban. From, not from wacko, you know, conspiracy theory sites, from corporate mainstream media sites, legacy media sites. Christian Taliban. What does that mean? Oh, the Christians just want to force us all to act like them. And they've messed up the world. They've messed up America. It's a tough place to be. But when you're faced with a decision, a choice between offending the world and offending God, which do you choose? Because that's what's happening in this text. And I want you to genuinely consider that. There are ways to think through some easy things and go, oh, yeah, you know, no, I don't do this. I, don't, I wouldn't offend God here. Yeah, don't take the easy things. Take the hard ones. Don't pat yourself on the back thinking all these areas of life where there's no temptation to follow the world's culture, that I got this. No, think of the hard ones. Think of the actual temptations to follow the world's culture that you face. You, you know what I think is probably one of the saddest parts of this story? It's that Simeon and Levi saw this as an affront to Dinah, but also an affront to the family and an affront to God. Jacob didn't. Jacob didn't see it as an affront to God. Jacob's challenge was, guys, look, y'all have put me in a really bad place in this community. But church, we've got to become a people that become more concerned with how sin offends God than how it might offend people when we stand for the truth of God's word. Now, if you're offending people because you're a jerk, that's not the same thing. That's not what I'm talking about, right? That's just being a jerk. Talking about standing on the truth of God's word. Talking about being willing to damage a relationship to save another. What would have happened if Jacob had just simply said to Simeon and Levi, we're not going to do things that way? What if he had taken the view of Joshua as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I don't even think Jacob realized how much that world he had moved into had shaped him. 
until this moment. Well, and, and that, I think that'll be clear next week. Is the world shaping you or is the Word of God shaping you? Do you find yourself agreeing with the world's values or do you find yourself trying to find creative ways to walk in both worlds? I see that. I see so many people trying to walk in both worlds. And I'm praying. Let me tell you what I'm praying for these days. I'm praying for courage. I'm praying for all of you and myself to have the courage to stand in the coming days, to understand and take a stand on the truths of Scripture. Not the red side or the blue side, but God's side. I am praying that you find courage to say things and do things that you should have done a long time ago. To give up some things. To speak the truth in love. Courage to walk away from some things. Courage to say no. Courage to say, I'm not going to live that way. Courage to step out of passivity and put back on the role of authority that God's given you, whether that's in the home or your job or wherever you may be. Courage to be okay when the world hates you. Because Jesus already said they're going to. Shouldn't be a surprise. There's a big conversation among evangelicals right now about how we should act on social media. And I promise y'all, that is a conversation worth having. Because if you spend any time on evangelical Twitter, you're like, seriously, are you sure you're a Christian? Um, But this, this, this conversation between being direct and being winsome, that's the big word that's being thrown out there. We need to be winsome. Which pretty much just means being nice. But it means beyond being nice. It means... Ultimately, it means compromising convictions to not hurt anybody's feelings. Ultimately, that's where it leads. Now, that's not what the winsome crowd says they're trying to do. But I've been watching this now for two years, and guess what? That's where it went. That's what's happened. And now I'm seeing guys that were in the winsome crowd all of a sudden go, whoa, that did not go like I thought it was going to go. Let's backtrack. Because they're trying to be reasonable in an unreasonable world. I'm still praying for courage to live in the world, not of the world. Courage to do the right thing. Courage to say the right thing regardless of the cost. Courage to not run and hide from difficult situations. The, the things that to stand as we're in the world, as salt and light in a dark world, courage to share the message of Jesus Christ as the only way, our only hope, the only truth that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. And there's only one way that, well, several ways, but there's, you know how that courage starts. It starts from being forgiven and made righteous. Proverbs 28 says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Matthew 9. Jesus said, Seeing the faith, 
Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. And once we've been forgiven, made righteous, we place our hope and our trust in him who gives us courage, who said, be strong and let your heart take courage, all who hope in the Lord. And I'll be honest, it's easier on me. I live in a bubble. I'm not, I know that. I live in a bubble. I don't go to work every day with lost people. I don't. I have to literally like go out and find them. I do. I'm, I'm being honest. I do. And what I'm trying to tell you is I'm up here saying stuff. You're living it in a way I'm not living it. And I pray daily for you to be a people of courage. I, and I, I keep saying it. I feel like if I say it enough, eventually it'll come true because it just, that's just the way life works. Not prophetically, just you say something long enough, you know, you can at least point and say, oh, I see, told you so. Um, it's coming, church. It's coming. I'm seeing We're seeing it. The, um, Dr. Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, said, California is not a post-Christian society. It's a never-Christian society. And I'm going to add one more thing that I've been trying to keep myself from saying, but I'm going to say it, and if there's fallout, so be it. This state is screwed up. But I'm here. On mission. And I see too many people running that should be standing. Because God placed us here to win the world, and the world's coming here. And you can run, you can. That's your prerogative, but I'm not. And whoever's here, we're going to stand together.